Good morning. We're working our way through a couple of chapters in the book of Hebrews. And as we've been saying, the Jewish Christians to whom the letter of Hebrews was written had been Christians for years, but the years had not been kind. The all-for-one and one-for-all days of Christianity for the Jews in Jerusalem had been eroded by famines and persecutions. Now, probably a couple decades later, um, they have been forced to leave Israel, and these Jewish Christians have then had to forfeit their neighborhood and their livelihood. Their decision to become Christians initially impacted them, but then went on to impact their families as well and left them with very difficult questions. Why do we suffer? Why do we continue to suffer? Is God aware? Or if he's aware, does he care? Uh, In addressing their disillusionment, the writer calls attention to some of the characters of God that they need to keep in focus. We've described this twin focus as like the lenses in a pair of glasses. If you are missing one lens in a glass, a pair of glasses, you can't see. You can't orient yourself. It's the same thing spiritually. There's sympathy and sovereignty. Sympathy is what makes God good. Sovereignty is what makes God great. If we have sympathy without sovereignty, we have goodness without greatness, and that leaves us vulnerable. If we have sovereignty without sympathy, we have greatness without sympathy, and that makes God distant, makes us feel unsafe. If we have both, they're like lenses of a binocular or lenses of glasses. And with that in mind, we come to a really important section uh, Hebrews 2, verses 16 through 18. It's in your worship folder. I'll read it, and then you can follow along with me if you if you like. It says, For surely it is not angels that he, Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. In chapter 1, if you come to this letter, it's, it goes into a really long section about the difference between Jesus and angels. And it seems like overkill. Just listen. I'll, I'll just read the first chapter to you. Long ago, At many times and in many ways, this is how the letter starts, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then it goes on. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I become your you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. 
Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are who are inheriting salvation. There's a line in Chinese that I liked when I heard it, Legung Da Dofu. And what it means is the god of thunder smashes the tofu. Tofu is a curd that is made from mashed soybeans, and it's really gelatinous. And so this line, the god of thunder smashes the tofu, is an indication of something that's too extreme. I mean, you don't have to smash tofu. If you just kind of go like this to it, it kind of goes apart. But this is the God of Thunder smashing the tofu. And it seems in this first chapter, why all this stuff? Okay, Jesus is better than angels. Okay, you know, so we don't have to make a big thing of it. It seems that, that why is he doing that? Why? And he answers the question, In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it's in your worship folder. So why this comparison? It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we neglect How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. The deal with angels and Jesus, the reason why he goes into detail, is because angels represent the Old Covenant. They are the mediators of the Old Covenant. They are the ones through whom God spoke to Moses. Angels represent the Old Covenant, and Jesus represents the New Covenant. And what the writer is doing to these Jewish Christians is something very difficult. He is uprooting them from an Old Covenant image of God and is repotting them into a New covenant image of God. And that's a very difficult thing if you have thought that God looked like what had been spoken to you for thousands of years. We assume, even in our day, we have hard we have a very hard time with this. We assume that God is a hybrid of the Old and New Testament. That God is kind of a hybrid of Sinai severity and Calvary kindness that you've got, you know, God's like a smoothie. You just take those things and you throw them in a blender and you whip them up and then you end up getting God. Um, God is not a, a hybrid. 
If you want to get an image of God, you can't take what you read in the old, what you read in the new, and somehow try to put them together. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. When Jesus reveals God, he reveals what God is like. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. Therefore, angels represented God in the old covenant, and did they represent facets of God? Yes. Did they represent God clearly? No, they can't. They can't represent the fatherhood of God because God is not their father. He is their master. That's why angels reflect servility. That's what they have. It's not a problem. They're not being insincere or ingenuine. They are just reflecting what they know. They know God as master, and that's why their picture of him in the Old Testament is fearful and severe. Jesus reflects what he knows. The father is not Jesus' master, he is Jesus' father. And that's what Jesus reflects. Now, here's the question. If you put your finger on the pulse of what God thinks deeply, what do you get? A master relating to servants or a father relating to children? Pick one or the other because he is not both. That I cannot let you answer. Well, he's a little bit of both, Mike. No, he isn't. He's one or the other. He's a master speaking to servants, or he's a father speaking to children, deeply, at his heart, at his core. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do is get these Jewish Christians to understand, okay, you've worshipped God and this has been your image, but it's not who he is deeply. Um, I think you can see that's a... That's a difficult thing. Jesus came down to reveal God in order to help mankind. It says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. When it says helps, the word for helps is literally to take somebody by the hand. If you're in a place that you can't get out of by yourself, this word, Jesus comes to take somebody by the hand. In fact, if you want a picture of it, it's exactly the word the Bible uses to describe what God did when he took his the children of Israel out of Egypt. They couldn't get out by themselves. What he did, he took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt. Now, Moses was involved, but ultimately it was God through Moses, taking them by the hand, taking them out of bondage and bringing them to the promised land. That's the image. Jesus came down to take hold of our hands, not just Jews now, the hands of everyone on the planet. Now, not everyone takes his hand, but that's why Jesus comes to do that. That's why he has to die, because of divine mercy. Angels don't die. Because angels don't die, angels don't experience the fear of death. So if Jesus came down to save angels and to take hold of them, would Jesus need to die? No, because they don't die. They don't deal with the fear of death. We do. If he's going to take our hand, the hand that is extended towards us needs to have a nail print in the middle of it. Needs to have a nail print in the wrist, probably. Because we face death, and our Savior needs to know what it's like to face death. 
Facing death is frightening. It's scary. Even for Christians? Absolutely. Absolutely. Angels don't experience death because death takes hold of mankind. Jesus takes hold of mankind so that he can help. In order to be sympathetic with the plight of mankind, Jesus must feel the weight of death. He comes to the aid of oppressed men and women whom he takes by the hand to lead them to safety. And there's two things. Maybe he reaches up with two hands. There's divine mercy and divine faithfulness. Let's think about mercy first, divine mercy. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Merciful. This is a first. This is a first. If you look, and we'll talk about high priest in weeks to come, there's places in this section that we'll talk about it. One thing you'll never find associated with a high priest, not a qualification, and here it's the first, that they need to be merciful. High priests, we're not functioning very well at the time this letter is written. They came under a lot of scrutiny, and he doesn't talk about good or bad high priests who exist. What he ends up saying, here's what God intended, what was necessary for high priests to, to epitomize. They need to be merciful and faithful. They need to be able to reflect divine mercy. Um, it says, and we'll come to this passage, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Anybody here um, ignorant and wayward? There we go. Okay. The high priest can deal gently with those who are ignorant and wayward because he knows what it's like to be ignorant and wayward. He is merciful. Um, the merciful interfacing of a high priest soothes the hard-edged, uncompromising kind of character of the law of God. God builds in the office of high priest because mercy is essential. Without a merciful high priest... Uh, they weren't always merciful, but Jesus is. Without a merciful high priest, the weight of the law of God is crushing, uncompromising, no wiggle room, no waffle room. There's no in and out. It's black and white. And if all we have is the law of God, then we come to this standard that's as hard and rigid as the stone tablets upon which the commandments were written. Fortunately, what God understood is that we don't do real well relating to stone tablets. What we need, we need to see someone who understands the weight of trying to live up to that and sympathizes with us in our ignorance and waywardness. Optional? No. Essential. Essential. We need to have someone who reflects understanding and sympathy. Um, this is not just nice, it's necessary. Without divine sympathy, I'm using my words carefully, we 
cannot draw close to God. Cannot. It's too frightening at some level. We might want to. We might find ourselves saying, God, I really wish, but without a sympathetic high priest, you really can't approach somebody you're frightened of. Would you agree? You might want to. You might want to be close to someone who frightens you, but fear has this way of making us tentative. And without a sympathetic high priest, the law of God is frightening. Frightening. Uh, It says in the Old Testament, Exodus 23, it's in your worship folder, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. My name is in him. Slavery is rooted in the absence of divine sympathy. To the degree divine sympathy escapes us, and we all have issues trying to understand it. To the degree divine sympathy is distanced from us, we are distant from God. And all of us, none of us grasps this. My point this morning is make room for divine sympathy. Make room for it. As divine sympathy becomes something that we can put our arms around, it allows us to draw close to him. That's what the point is. Uh, Divine sympathy is veiled in the Old Testament. You don't see a lot of divine sympathy in the Old Testament. You see some. It's veiled. Would you agree with me? Divine sympathy is eclipsed by divine wrath and judgment. Would you agree with me? If you read through the Old Testament, how does it end? Israel is, they go into captivity. The northern nation of Israel goes into captivity. The southern, they end up getting led away on hooks. It doesn't end well. Divine judgment trumps divine mercy in the Old Testament. Is that because that's what God is like? If you put your finger in the pulse of what God is like, does divine judgment trump divine mercy? That's a good question, isn't it? Some people really, really wrestle with that because they put the Bible together into a smoothie and say, ah, that's a good question. You can't put the Bible together. If you put your finger on the pulse of what God is like, you have to put your finger on Jesus' pulse. Divine mercy trumps divine judgment in the character of God. Divine mercy trumps divine judgment in the character of God. And we need to understand that. What distinguishes the Old Testament from the New Testament? What distinguishes the Old Testament from the New Testament? Divine sympathy. Why is the New Testament different from the Old Testament? Divine sympathy reflected in Jesus. Making room for divine sympathy, and I'll say this, is not nice. It's not, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice of God to be sympathetic? It's not nice. It's 
necessary. It's not just a nice idea. Make room for it. I would say, no, Mike, I need to balance them out. No, you don't. No, you don't. There's enough of the, the awareness of God's character and judgment in our minds because of the Old Testament. We need to have it conditioned by the mercy of God. Uh, the gospel is rooted in divine mercy. Growth in Christ-likeness is directly related to the ability to embrace divine sympathy. And we'll, it'll go on to talk about that. Let's talk about divine faithfulness. Faithful means, when you're talking about faithful in the context, a merciful and faithful high priest, a faithful high priest is one who discharges the duties that they are charged to discharge. If you're faithful in your job, you've done the things that have been asked of you. Jesus comes to be a high priest, and we'll talk about that in weeks to come. And faithfulness means he does what he's supposed to do. What's high priest? High priest supposed to do. What was Jesus faithful to do? Why did he have to die? And here's what it says. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Um, that word, make propitiation, uh, it's not a word we use a bunch. There is a word that we talk about. And make propitiation has at its heart the word helios. Helios, and we talk about that word. What helios means as part of the new covenant, it says literally, I will be helios to their unrighteousnesses. That's what the new covenant says. God says, I will be helios to their unrighteousnesses. And helios means gracious, favorable, benevolent, cheerful, non-reactive. Now, here's what the New Covenant says. When God thinks about your sins, He will be gracious, cheerful, merciful, benevolent, non-reactive. God looks at you yesterday. Gracious, cheerful, benevolent, favorable, non-reactive. And then you did that thing last night. You know the thing. Maybe not last night. Maybe the night before last. Or the night before that. And what we imagine is God's face turns from gracious, cheerful, benevolent, favorable, and merciful to, you know, I saw what you looked at online. <laughs> and either, depending on how we're raised, either God outright, <sighs> I told you my dad had this. My dad had this great look. I, I try to do it, but I haven't mastered it. It's, it's three different things. It involves a, you have to, you have to have this, and you have to shake your head, and you have to go. So it's and it's, it's just wonderful. It's just a one. It's it's a one, two, three punch. And so, but it really takes practice to put them all together. I'm a little bit clumsy with it, but it looks a little bit like this. I see we did. You know that wasn't bad. That was, that was, yeah. And that's what we imagine. Do your sins change God's face? I want you to think about that. Now you say, mm, do your sins change God's face? What the new covenant indicates? No, it doesn't. And this word propitiation is the means by which God becomes helios. What does it take for God not to be reactive? I mean, what does that take? And there's two ways that God becomes helios. And again, if you care about words, I'll just, I'm not going to go into a big long thing, but there's two words. Propitiation is one way, 
And expiation is another way. I'm going to tell you the difference between propitiation and expiation. They are focused on different things. I want you to imagine that you've done something and let this represent what you've done to me. And I am God. Yeah, okay, that one, that one, that's good. Okay. Okay, propitiation focuses on me. So what propitiation is, it focuses on the offended God. And so what propitiation means, it's, and in, in religion, it's men and women are forced to act to change the God's attitude, giving them reason to get past being offended. Propitiation is when you pacify me. Jeez. You pacify me by doing something or killing something. That's propitiation. It has to deal with the offended God. And so I see you. How much did you put in the offering plate? Okay. Okay, I saw what you did last night, and so that does it. Okay, I feel okay about you now. And that's that's propitiation. Everybody got that? It focuses on the offended God. Expiation. It focuses on the offending act. This is the sin needs to be taken care of. It's not God's, oh, this sin does make a breach, and expiation is dealing with this. It deals with this. Which one? What did Jesus come to do? Satisfy an offended God? Or take away an offending act? It's a different, there's a different picture here. It's, I was talking to a friend, and at one point he understood what we teach here, that Jesus was not punished on the cross. Again, it's what we teach, and again, I don't, we all have different experience with it. It's a strong statement. Some people believe that God had to kill his son in order to satisfy his wrath. Bam! Bam! Okay, then. I don't have to beat you. I beat my son. Welcome to the family. I don't know. I don't, you know, and so that's the sense that God punishes his son. Would that be propitiation or expiation? God punishing his son in order to change his attitude. Propitiation or expiation? Propitiation, that's exactly what it is. It's about pacifying the offended God. And that's not what the Bible indicates. In the letter, here's what it says in Hebrews 9, Christ... Hebrews 9.20, let me just read this. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he bears the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He went bearing sins, taking sins away. And he comes back literally without sin. When he comes a second time, he's not going to be bearing. Where'd the sins go? And him taking sins, is that propitiation or expiation? What is it? 
That's expiation. It's taking away the offending act. Jesus, where'd the sins go? I took them away. What does that mean? That means there's nothing that's standing in the way. And we can believe now that they're already been taken away. How do we know that? He rose from the dead. If God was not allowing him to take sins up, Jesus never would have rose. But he did rise. Are your sins standing in the way of you and God? Are you sure? How do you know? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, you can know what would happen if you believe that. Yeah, that's a challenge, though, isn't it? It's a challenge. Um, in taking sins to heaven and returning without them, Jesus does not do propitiation. He does expiation. And what I'm saying, in my opinion, this is a new translation of the Bible. And it's wrong. Somebody takes a word. That which makes God hilios. And they define how it happened, and they misdefined it. So people are going to read this, and if they know what propitiation is, they're thinking that this verse is saying that God had to beat up his son in order to get past. And they think it's in the Bible. And it isn't. The Bible doesn't say that. It says he took away the sins. And so people are coming to the word of God. And I, yeah, I, and again, that's just so you know, it's the majority view. It's what most Christians believe. And I'm not throwing rocks, I'm just saying, no, it's not it. It's not propitiation, it's expiation. Jesus did not die to deal with the offended God. He died to deal with the offending act. He died to deal with sin. He died to help us. But because he was himself was suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. In what way was Jesus tempted? You know what temptation is? It's not primarily an inducement to sin. Primarily, temptation is not an inducement to sin. Like I, come on, see if you trip over my foot. That's where we think temptation is. God saying, "Oh, come on this way." No, there's nothing in the way. <laughs> Uh, no, no, my foot's not there. Don't look at my, no, no, just look at me. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> that's, and we think that God does that. It's, it's not an inducement to sin, it's a test of resolve. It's a test of resolve. To what degree and to what extent is Jesus willing to experience death so he can take you by the hand? That's the temptation. That's the temptation. It says, um, Jesus answered them. Um, it's in John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says, now my soul, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' soul is troubled. His emotions are churned up like a storm at sea. That's what it looks like inside. His emotions are churned up. Um, he understands that his death is imminent. Now, Jesus knows, he knows that his death has eternal implications. 
He knows that if he goes into the ground and dies, a lot of people are going to come into eternal existence. He knows that if a seed remains alone, if you take a seed and put it on this music stand, it stays a single seed. If you take this seed and put it in the ground, what happens? The outside of the seed decomposes and a tree comes up. And how many seeds are in a tree? So here's the deal. Is Jesus going to exist alone as a son of God? Or is he going to go into the ground so that you can become a son or daughter of God? But in order for that to happen, he's got to die. He already knows that his death is going to accomplish that. And yet, at some level, he still recoils from dying. I want you to listen to me. Jesus understands that he is going to rise and that people are going to be eternally welcomed. And still he recoils from death. Why is he recoiling from death? The same reason you and I do, because we're embodied. As Jesus thinks about what he's going to experience, it tugs at him. He feels it. The body has reactions to his own demise. This was built for survival. And when your survival is in question and in doubt, you will not be able to just, oh, I'm fine, I'm going to heaven. You might want to do that, but your brain will not let you. Why? Because the body is built to survive. And when Jesus faces his own demise, his body is reacting. Why does his body need to react? Why does Jesus need to to understand this? So when we face our death, or the death of someone close to us, We can understand that Jesus understands, and we don't have to walk through it alone. I know exactly how that feels. There's something about divine sympathy that is tremendously powerful. We need to know that he understands. And I think that's what the writer is saying Jesus didn't use eternity to overcome the fear of death. He didn't use eternity as a muzzle. Some of us, if we come to the place where we fear death, we say, oh, geez, I must not be a good Christian. I'm supposed to believe in eternity enough that I don't let my death bother me. Jesus believed in eternity and his death bothered him. Is it going to bother you? Is your death going to bother you? Oh, but even if you're a Christian? Yes. Yes, because you're human. And Jesus understands. No, he doesn't understand it. He sympathizes with it. He felt it. And he wants you to know that he felt it. Why do you need to know that? Because it's necessary to know that God cares. And God sympathizes. That's deep within the character of God. Um, Jesus said, now my soul is troubled. You know, you know what, how Jesus is different from us? When he felt the stirrings of fear, 
He didn't throw penalty flags at them. <laughs> he said, no, my soul is troubled. He didn't say, holy smokes, I'm a week, I'm, I'm less than a week from dying and my soul is troubled. Oh my goodness, what the heck am I gonna do? I, I gotta, I gotta conquer this some way. He didn't do that. You know what he just, he just touched it. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It's for this very reason I came to this hour. You know with this hour why Jesus came? Not just to die, but to feel the fear of death. And what Jesus says, I know how that feels. When somebody close dies, when you think of, you know what happened this past week? As we think about J.C. dying, what it does, it causes us to bring our own death into view. Geez, what would happen if I was in that position? I don't think I'd feel okay. I think J.C.'s probably in heaven, but I don't think I am. In fact, I don't even want to think about it. I, I don't know. I, I feel afraid. And if I was a Christian, I wouldn't feel afraid. You ever feel afraid of the fear of death? We feel the fear of death. We do. No, we don't. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And if you say you don't feel it, that's not good news. Because it's there, but you're pushing it under the water. And if you dissociate it, that's not a really good thing because it's going to come out sideways. And you're not going to be able to control it. Again, I'm not saying, okay, get in touch. All I'm saying is it's a natural thing. So it's something that we deal with. The fear of death is a natural response. And when we feel it, we say, oh, that's not good. Jesus felt and said, Okay, that doesn't feel good, but that doesn't mean it's bad. I came to feel this. So he didn't try to change. He didn't try to push on it. He just let it be. Father, make this pass from me. I really don't want to die, but your will be done. To hold on to the reality of fear and to hold on to God's hand at the same time. Death kind of freak you out. The death of somebody close, hard, again, it's really hard for J.C. for a number of reasons. To be close and not dad and not husband, that becomes a different issue. But for all of us, whether we knew J.C. or not, death is, comes, comes by us, doesn't it? He was only 58. Death can happen quickly. Am I ready to die? I don't think so. What I'm indicating, hold on to the reality of what you feel. Well, what do I feel? I want you to know, though, before we, that God does not give us the ability to eliminate the fear of death. God does not give us the ability to eliminate the fear of death. God does not give us the ability to eliminate the fear of death. God does not give us the ability to eliminate the fear of death. He gives us the ability to endure it. How does he do that? By having his son reach out and say, I'm going to walk through this with you. And I understand. It's always easier to walk through something with someone who understands. Would you agree with me? Always easier to walk through something with someone who understands, who doesn't go, who goes, I know exactly what you mean. That's Jesus. And you know why Jesus is in that place? Because the Father sent him so that you would have that presence. It's not the Son and the Father against each other. It's them reaching out, divine mercy, divine faithfulness. That's the truth. Um, 
says we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, and a house not made with hands. It's in the last verse. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. When we talked to the family on a visitation on um, Friday night, and the body was there, and we talked about this is J.C.'s temporary home, and he moved out. And what's going to happen, um, and he was... We brought him to Kansas, where his body was committed to the ground. Let me tell you what's going to happen. I know because Jesus rose. Jesus is going to come again, and he's not going to have sins with him. He took them away, expiated them. And there's a body that's going to rise out of a funeral in Can- out of a out of a burial plot in Kansas. J.C.'s body is going to come up out of the ground. Everybody knows him, and his spirit is going to be united with his body. And as we said, J.C. is going to get up in heaven, and he's going to go, yes, this is what I was meant for. This is the place I was always meant to live. Um, that's going to happen. On this side of that, though, we groan and are burdened. Can you hear it? You know what the groaning is? Because we don't want to move out. We don't want to move out of this body. We, oh, can you hear it? Oh, I don't want to suffocate. Oh, I don't want. Oh, I don't want. We we don't want to move out, and that's a fearful groaning. It's a fearful groaning, and that's what it says. We don't want to be unclothed. But if you listen, listen to it again. Listen to it. Oh, it's not just fearful. It's joyful. Oh, I want to move in. I don't want to move out, but I want to move in. If you're, if you are in a place where you're about to move out of a house, how many of you like moving out of a house? I mean, anybody? Any hands? Anywhere? How many of you like the process of moving into a house? Well, Nordstrom's, what did you, how was fun? Moving out fun? No, not fun. Moving in better? No? <laughs> okay, okay. There goes that illustration. Thank you very much. Okay. As it relates to, this, we move out of these temporary shelters into permanent ones. And you know what? Moving in is going to be a piece of cake. Moving out. So here's the deal. Our groaning, is it fearful or joyful? Fearful or joyful? Somebody tell me wrong choice. <coughs> fearful. What? And joyful. How can it be both? Because it's both. It's not fearful or joyful. It's fearful and joyful. Do you have both of those things in you? So did Jesus. So you're in good company. I think that's what divine mercy means. That's what divine sympathy means. Uh, Conclusions, a couple things. Jesus wasn't afraid of the fear of death. Jesus doesn't dangle eternity as a carrot to force you to smile when you think of death. He just doesn't do it. He understands that fear is a natural response. Secondly, Jesus' help allows us to endure the tension of the fear of death, not eliminate it, not eliminate it, endure it. For how many days? Chambers will tell you it's a day at a time. It's a day at a time. 
God, give me what I need to manage it today. He gives us what we need. And finally, and come on up. I mean, we need to make room for divine mercy, divine sympathy. Father, thank you for the gospel and for the revelation of divine sympathy. You're not creating it, but Jesus discovers it for us. It was veiled in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean it didn't exist, but you veiled it for a purpose, and then you brought it into the light. It's what you're like, and you know why you did it this way. But at any rate, thank you for revealing yourself to us in Christ and for the faithfulness and mercy that exist deep within you and that you wanted us to know about. In Jesus' name, amen.